Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 166. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss an article that proposes archaeology as the next harbor for technology. Hmm. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I mean, uh, for a good month or so, I was complaining about not having any work, and now I have too much work. (laughs) So this has been a lot of fun. I've been... uh, you know, flexing my archaeological muscles again. And I think I mentioned, but maybe I didn't. In a couple of days, I'm flying off to Iraq to uh, go nice. do some work in the site of Lagash. And I am thrilled. Nice. I hope to get some awesome reports back from Iraq when you're done there. We'll definitely talk about it. Maybe even bring you on to the archaeology show. If listeners to the show aren't familiar with that, it's a show I do with my wife now, who's also an archaeologist. And we talk sites like that, right? No, no technical talk or anything like that. We just talk about the, the basics and things and sometimes news articles and stuff like that. So it'd be awesome to get you on the archaeology show to talk about your experiences over there and the archaeology over there. And then maybe we'll have a debrief on the Archaeotech podcast about what you did over there and some of the other techie type things that you guys did. Yeah, the techie kind of stuff that we're going to be doing there. Uh, my job is to be flying a drone. Oh, and that's new since last time. I yeah. took my oh, yeah. Power 107 exam and passed it. <laughs> Nice. So uh, I'll be legal to fly drones, you know, for non-recreational purposes in the U.S. Well, I am already. I've got my temporary yeah. permit in the end, but I'll be doing that, you know, on this project in Iraq. I'm going to be making a new uh, new map of the site to, using photogrammetry. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll see, because <laughs> there's been a bit of a mix up with the <laughs> drone. We'll see which kind of drone I'm going to be using. But we've got that. And then the other... The other archaeologist that's going out there is uh, is working on his dissertation, and he's looking at the extension of the land where the Tigris and the Euphrates join out in, and dump into the um, into the Persian Gulf because oh, cool. that coastline has been extending over the millennia. You know, like in the same way that like the uh, the Mississippi River Delta has yeah. expanded, right? Uh, so he's looking at the soils there. So he's doing a number of cores. So. We'll God. have some techie stuff to talk about. There's got to be so much soil and material just dumped out by that river because of where it's at. You know, all the sand and everything mm-hmm. that just moves easily with the river. Man. Yeah. I yeah. Can imagine. It's very flat. And uh, those rivers constantly jump course uh, anytime they flood, yeah. especially the Euphrates. And some of these major sites like Lagash, like Ur, which are now pretty far inland back in antiquity when they were at their height were... You know, or had a had, had docks on one side, mm-hmm. had a harbor. So yeah, um, yeah they, they were right there wow. on the river, right next to the Persian Gulf. And now they're deep inland. Wow, that's crazy. And I've been on the Persian Gulf in a nuclear aircraft carrier. And that's the only, the only time. <laughs> it's crazy, the <laughs> intersection of, of yeah. things here. Yeah. All right. Well, 
we're not done talking about drones because uh, they're definitely going to be part of this next conversation. But we're going to talk about an article that was actually sent to us by the APN's co-founder, Tristan Boyle. He dropped it in our Slack channel here. And it's Ooh, from Heritage yes. Daily. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's from Heritage Daily. It's We'll have the link in the show notes. But it's called Why Archaeology Will Be the Next Harbor for Technology. It was written on October 12th, 2021 by Terry Maddenholm. I don't know if I'm, I think I'm saying that right. Terry Maddenholm. And she is a project partner for a company called Drone Archaeology. And they focus on identifying threatened archaeological sites using non-invasive technologies such as LIDAR, satellite imagery and drones and building 3D models of endangered heritage. And I will mention we tried to get Terry on this, but I couldn't seem to get a hold of her through LinkedIn or through the Drone Archaeology website. So we'll keep trying because I'd like to talk to the people that work for this company because according to their website, Man, they, they seem to have a really robust program across several continents and doing some really cool things, uh, according to, like I said, the website, but I can't seem to get a hold of them. So that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I was pretty excited looking at their website because one of their missions is education. Uh, yeah. So they have a number of different courses and lectures available for archaeologists uh, for a fee. They, they are a company. Sure. That's fine. I mean, if they're providing a good service, by all means, we should uh, we should be able to pay for it in order to you know gain access to that knowledge. We don't all have to Absolutely. reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So we're going to spend our time talking about some of the things that Terry mentions in this article, what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, what we agree or disagree. And I'm sure this will be a good jumping off point for some other stuff that we are going to discussed. So the first thing that popped out at me in this article that I put in our notes is, uh, and this is a quote from the article is, archaeologists are equipped with the newest technological tools that allow, and she goes on, but she mentions laser scanners, satellite imagery, dot, dot, dot. And I'm just like, really? Arche- I mean, we spend our entire podcast talking about how archaeologists are kind of behind the times in most cases. So there's definitely forward thinking archaeologists and companies out there that are trying to do, you know, better, not just established technologies. Like it's odd to say that drones are an established technology now, but they really are. And even they 3D are. printing is really 3D printing and scanning really is kind of an established technology now that you can buy a rudimentary 3D printer for like 200 bucks. And those are now established things that more and more companies are starting to add to their routine versus their novelty lab items that they might use once or twice. When it gets added to the routine, that's when I would call it a big thing. Yeah. I thought that satellite imagery was a bit of an odd one to put in there. And <laughs> <laughs> that I know archaeologists have been using, you know, Landsat 5 since the 70s. Uh, the tools yeah. to, to manipulate that satellite imagery have, have gotten better and faster and more accessible over the years. The accessibility of that image has, that imagery has gotten better along the way. But satellite imagery writ large is certainly nothing new in the field. I'm sure we've all used and experienced it in various ways. It's again, mm-hmm. it's been getting better. And ever since, you know, Google Earth came out and we could start seeing, you know, detailed photographs of our site areas, our houses, our neighbors, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's gotten much, much easier to, to work with and interact with. And we can use this as a test. I've seen a lot of different, you know, Google Earth uh, base maps for things. But, um, mm-hmm. and that is satellite imagery. But, I guess it's because of that ubiquity that uh, that I don't know that it had to be called out specifically. Yeah, and you got to watch out for satellite imagery too, of course, right? Because if you're looking for the current state of affairs in a in a satellite image, obviously 
you're not going to necessarily get that depending on what you're actually working on. If you're working in somewhere at some place that's being developed, then there's little chance that the imagery you're going to get access to is actually current. Even the RV park we're in outside of Austin, Texas right now is not on the satellite images. Uh, they just opened in July, which means they were probably developing this, I would assume, through the early part of this year. But to be honest, I don't know when they started developing this, but it's a forest next to the highway if you look at the satellite. And now it's, you know, a hundred RV spots and that are all paved and manicured. Mm -hmm. <laughs> None of that's in the imagery. <laughs> I had something uh, just now today uh, on this project that I'm looking at, that I'm working on. I was looking at the map and uh, we are following along where land surveyors, they're in, they're putting, they're surveying in the course of a proposed uh, hiking trail along the Hudson mm -hmm. River. And so fortunately for us, we just go to the points that they've surveyed every 50 feet. And that's where we can drop our STPs, which is really easy. We don't even have to work with maps. But I was looking at the map that the principal sent me and looking at the course and following along what we did yesterday. And I'm like, it goes on the map, it goes to one side of a white dot. Uh, and I know what that <laughs> white dot is. It's a structure. Uh, but when we were there, we were on the other side of the white dot. We were the other side of that structure. <laughs> you know, it's just a shed right at the edge of the road. It's nothing big. Yeah. And I don't know. Is that because the map was misaligned? Is that because the surveyors put the uh, the points in the wrong place? <laughs> I hope not. But uh, right. I'm not entirely sure what went, what went wrong. What went wrong with that? Jeez. Yeah, you never can tell, really. Uh, you just got to be careful with what you're looking at. One nice thing that Google Earth did, and Google Earth seems relatively unsupported now, the, the independent application. Mm -hmm. I think it's all basically rolled into to Google Maps. But I, I just don't know well enough if this is a a thing you can easily find anymore. But again, one of the things Google Earth did really well was the historical imagery and telling you the year that the imagery you're looking at was actually collected and created. So that's pretty handy. Uh, yeah, that's, been, uh, that's been something I use a lot, um, just idly because I'm not doing any research right now. But with Yemen, uh, there's been so much construction in parts where I've worked that I can mm -hmm. use it and I can see the expansion of towns. I can see the encroachment of fields upon sites. The land gets you know ripped up and changed. I see a couple historic forts that are no longer in existence. <laughs> and you can see that yeah. because you can just use that little slider at the top of Google Earth and say, you know, this year, last year, two years ago, back as far as uh, they have imagery for that uh, particular mm -hmm. location. I used to like doing that for open pit mines in Nevada because the pit changes so dramatically. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, just looking back through the imagery and watching a mountain grow where, <laughs> there, <laughs> there's, where there isn't one now. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's take a short break and come back and continue talking about this article. In the meantime, go check it out. It's in the show notes, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 166, or just take a look at whatever app you're using right now to listen to this podcast unless you're driving don't do that and click on the article and it should take you straight there back in a minute chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 
10% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 166. We're talking about an article from Heritage Daily, written in October 2021. Check it out in the show notes. And... I'm just kind of pulling out quotes here because let me let me just tell you, the article talks about a whole bunch of different technologies that the author says is transforming the field of archaeology. That is indisputable. All these things are actually mm-hmm. transforming the field of archaeology in their own independent way. But she does it in a way that makes it seem like we're pioneering these things. And you know, maybe we're pioneering the use of LIDAR for archaeological research, sure, but we certainly didn't pioneer the use of LIDAR for anything, right? So, you know, and, and satellite imagery and AI and all this other stuff. Archaeology, I feel like the only thing we pioneered is is camping in the wilderness, drinking heavily and working the next day without any problem. That's really, <laughs> like, where it ends. <laughs> so I think... Uh, as far as being a pioneering uh, sort of resource and and saying that archaeology is almost the basis for these things and the the place where these things are being allowed to be fruitful and 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 develop more seems to be a little bit starry-eyed to me and and not really following along the truth. I don't know what do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, the article is light on details. It's that's mm-hmm. not its purpose. It's not trying to tell you. It's not trying to be an exhaustive list of things. Uh, it's a bit of sure. a cheerleading for tech in archaeology, and so that way, it's a lot like this here podcast. You know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it could well have been you know me just idly chatting about uh, about technology and archaeology off the off the cuff off the top of my head so uh, it was i wanted more <laughs> i think i say that about every article we read yeah but yeah it, I, I agree with you it, it did maybe give a bit of an aspirational sense of how technology is used in archaeology in archaeology rather than make a forceful argument for how it can be used and what directions it can go. Uh, it was kind of like, hey, here's cool things. There might be other cool things coming down the road, uh, right. which is all true. Well, it can't falter for that, yeah. but uh, but there wasn't enough meat, really. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So that leads right into one of the other quotes I pulled out, which is actually right near the beginning of the article, uh, where she says that soon robotics and AI will become an essential part of the field too. That much I don't dispute. Why not? Transforming archaeology into a discipline of the future. I feel like 
I feel like by the time robotics and AI become an essential part of the field and using that word routine again, by the time they become routine, that archaeology will be just catching up with everyone else, not a discipline of the future. That seems, again, a little bit starry eyed to me because, sure, we're already using robotics and AI in a way, right? You're talking about using something like drone deploy over in Iraq. That's literally robotics and AI doing the work for you. Like you basically yeah. push a button after you program it and the robot does all the work for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you upload all those images and some other computer that I don't have to configure is going to stitch them all together and hopefully give me a good map at the end. Exactly. Exactly. So we are we are already doing that. And I guess in the context of maybe some other businesses or, or industries, I should say, maybe we're a little bit part of the future. But man, I really feel like surveyors and and a lot of other people have been doing a lot of this stuff, you know, well before the field of archaeology. I don't want to keep harping on that, like the, the starry eyed nature of the article, because it is like a little bit of that throughout. That's the thrust of the whole thing, given the title. But mm-hmm. You know, I, I just want to talk about these things independently, see where they're at today. But I'm just going to put a little plug in here for something that I found out about last week, uh, a book. Uh, and I'm plugging it because it's from the Santa Fe Institute, a few people that I follow on Twitter. And it's called Agent-Based Modeling for Archaeology. Uh, and they have a freely oh, yeah. downloadable PDF of it. So uh, I haven't had the chance to read it yet. Hopefully, I'll be you know digging into it some on the uh, really, really long flight from <laughs> from New York to uh <laughs> Basra, but uh, well, two flights actually, and a really, really long layover. Uh, but that maybe gets will you know kind of unpack for me a little bit about what we might mean by using AI in archaeology. So I'll definitely put a link yeah. to that in the show notes too. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, let's talk about a few more things here. She says that we may expect in the coming years a launch of a satellite specially designed for archaeological use. And again, I thought that was a cool thing to say, but man, that is pure speculation on her part. And I, I'm wondering who would fund that. It's always a question of who's going to pay for that. And, a sa- and what would a, Paul, if, if you could launch a satellite specifically for archaeological use, what kind of attributes would that have? And then, and then more importantly, how would you control tasking? Like who gets to, who gets to use it? But let's let's say, what would you want it to do if we had our own satellite for archaeological use? Probably the biggest thing I would want it to do would be able to, uh, to monitor sites remotely mm-hmm. and automated by itself. We could probably do that with existing satellite imagery and the existing tool sets, but that that would probably be the highest priority for me, especially because so many of the parts of the world I've worked are really subject to bad looting. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. it can not just be looting. It can also be, like I said before, encroachment of cities and, and farmers' fields, construction activities like roads and so on, uh, basically to fill in some of the gaps to maybe predict uh, areas of high sensitivity before we actually have to send people on the ground to go look at that. That to me would be something specifically archaeological that we could do. It it wouldn't be groundbreakingly new in terms of the technologies applied, but it would be if there was a purpose-built satellite system for doing that, that would be useful, I could see. Hmm. Do you have any ideas? Because you know, one of the things that uh, we get at the same time criticized for and lionized for as archaeologists is that we don't really invent our own stuff, you know, and radiocarbon is often held up as the only thing that was ever really invented by and for archaeologists. And I don't even know how much the by was by archaeologists. You know, I, I, everything I can think of, I struggle to come up with something new that wouldn't be already in use by agriculture, for example. 
forestry, mm-hmm. things that are much more lucrative industries. Uh, and then we could piggyback off of their technologies. Yeah. And you're totally right. I mean, there's so many things that that we just use, which I that's one of the things I do like about archaeology, though, is we are a multifaceted discipline that does use a number of other things in order to answer a single question, right? Like what, Mm -hmm. why, and how, you know, how, how they get here, what were they doing and you know how they do it. So that's not a single question. It kind of is, it's your thesis for the whole (laughs) site, but yeah. And and that's what I, that's, again, that's what I really like about it. But uh, I think some things I would like go to back to the satellite question is obviously the highest resolution you could possibly get, because I'd love to be able to do some pattern shape recognition and analysis based off of satellite imagery and, and Mm -hmm. do some preliminary survey type of thing with that using, using, some algorithms and machine learning type stuff to figure out what's there before you even go out there. That would be super cool. But then the other types of imagery that you could probably do off of a satellite as well, right? Not just visual imagery, but, you know, some sort of multi-spectral imagery or something that would help us see other things. You can't do like, you can't do LIDAR off a satellite. I don't think that that wouldn't work, but it's too, it needs too much power, but there's gotta be other stuff. There's other types of satellite imagery that would definitely, definitely benefit archeology. span Maybe some that don't even exist yet. Right. Uh, But benefit archeology span is different than something being purposely built for archeology. span Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess, I I guess we're splitting hairs here, but, uh, (laughs) but that did stick out to me as well. Reading. I was like, really something for archeologists. I have troubles believing that. (laughs) Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, unless it's a new microbrew, I can't imagine anything for archaeologists. <laughs> Trust me, there have been plenty of those made just for archaeologists. Plenty of archaeology brewers out there. <laughs> uh, Guilty. Now, I, I guess when I was thinking of the satellite, I wasn't even thinking of something made with new arch- new technologies invented for archaeology. I was just thinking of a satellite, literally a satellite put together with existing technologies, but tasked only for archaeology. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's, um, when, that's when basically that. what I was arguing with the um, with the monitoring satellite. Uh, new yeah. technologies require somebody smarter than I am, uh, more inventive than I am, more able to think outside the box and <laughs> integrate different kinds of uh, scientific techniques that, that I'm capable of. But uh, but existing ones, that's you know, I can think of them, but I also can't imagine where the uh, the like you said the money would be the the pull, the real interest. And that's why I went to, uh, mm-hmm. that's why I went to monitoring because, you know, what we saw with, um, with ISIS and Syria in particular is that there is worldwide interest in what happens to archeological sites when they get uh, damaged or destroyed. Uh, mm-hmm. but is that enough to translate into real action or is it, you know, yet another one third scale model of the, uh, the arch at Palmyra? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and when I try to think of new stuff as well, I mean, invention is driven by need, right? And archaeologists have a pretty common need aside from the typical archaeological questions that we try to answer. We have a pretty common need of collecting and organizing large amounts of data, making sure everything is accessible in, in multiple formats. Like you said, you know, the destruction of certain things. I mean, even Notre Dame as well, when that burned down, if we didn't Mm. have so many scans of that, I mean, they were able to basically, I saw a a 3d model that was put together of Notre Dame from Instagram images because so many people have stood in front of it and took, taken pictures of it. They were able to get enough photos to basically reconstruct it. And it's been scanned so many times on the inside and out for video games and, and other things that, 
if they want to build that thing exactly as it was before it burned down, it will be absolutely no problem. We, we know every square inch of that thing, almost literally every square inch. And so having that kind of data is something that we need. But really, our needs come down to who's going to pay for it and who's going to do it. Because I feel like the technologies already exist to do a lot of things we want to do. We just don't have the funds or time or or research case in some in some instances to actually get it done like virtually reconstructing let's say the entire planet at different time periods right that would be super cool we're already gathering the data to do that in most cases it would be fun to put something like that together but who could possibly do that you know who could possibly do that lithodomos vr maybe i don't know <laughs> so yeah Anyway, let's take our final break and wrap this article up on the other side. And I want to talk about our tiny robot army that we're going to deploy. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Back in a second. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 166 of the Architect Podcast. And we're talking about this article in Heritage Daily, linked in the show notes. One of the last quotes I wrote down here that Terry mentions in the article is, we can therefore envision that in the near future, archaeologists will deploy legions of tiny bots that will perform archaeological operations while documenting each step of the process. They would be used to collect samples, for example, DNA testing, without disturbing the integrity of the site. And I got to tell you, that is really really crazy to me. Um, awesome. Don't get me wrong. I can think of tiny, many cases where I've seen an episode of Star Trek that mentioned something about nanobots. And I'm like, wow, we could really use that to do some stuff. Mm. Because if you can imagine actual nanobots, right, not just tiny robots doing things, because we actually talked about that snake-like tube robot thing that can move through yep. sites and, and have a camera. So that's one thing. But, but I'm thinking like nanobots that can actually go through the soil not disturb the soil necessarily, but go through the soil like tiny little sugar ants. And then everything they touch kind of gets mapped and you get this full profile under the ground. And then they come back out, go back into their tube. Hopefully they don't, uh, you know, take over the planet and do whatever, you know, get absorbed into your body, whatever the case may be. But mm -hmm. just do that sort of thing. I could envision that. But seriously, where is that technology? And when is that technology? Yeah, I mean, we certainly don't have anything small enough like that, uh, autonomous sure. enough like that, and that could map at details like that. But uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting because you know I've joked with you about your your your, your tricorder that you pull out and you, uh, and you <laughs> get a snapshot of what's under the ground right there, and you know you know how many levels and how deep and where's the architecture and where are the fire pits and blah blah blah. Yep, that that would actually be one way about actually making that happen. 
you know, so not through a magic mm-hmm. scanner, but through little physical devices that go and do the digging with as minimal disturbance as possible and do the recording uh, as accurately and as comprehensively as possible and then return with all that information. And you deploy, mm-hmm. I don't know, hundreds or thousands across a site, let them do that and uh, and then collect. And now you've got a snapshot. So that might work. But again, when? When, when would anything like yeah. that be coming down the pike? I can't imagine it's anywhere within uh, the next 20 years. And I mean, yes, lack of imagination is not a good you know, basis for an argument, but I really can't imagine it coming around too soon. Well, and are you saying 20 years before something like that is invented or 20 years before archaeologists would get their hands on it? Because it's got to be at least 10 years after it's invented that we'd be able to afford it. I was thinking 20 years until it's invented. And I don't think that the the gap is necessarily that long. I mean, how long did it take for drones, since we mention them all the time, drink, uh, to go from being, (laughs) you know, something that only the military had to something that was uh, a really kind of cool toy to something that is pretty commonly used by many, many different projects? I mean, probably about 15 years, right? Yeah, I suppose so, because the first... Well, in that, it's a real interesting question, right? Like what a drones, drones fascinating because I grew up with RC airplanes, right? And, and not RC's helicopters, but I definitely seen them. My, we never had any RC helicopters, but my dad was an RC modeler and my grandfather was, and I just grew up from the time I was an infant to being around RC airplanes. My dad still flies and builds RC airplanes. And right. so I've been around that for a long time and how... It's like when somebody first threw a camera on something and made it so pretty much anybody could fly it because it had four rotors of maintained stability, all of a sudden they're called drones. Like, why aren't RC airplanes called drones? You know, when did that technology really start and then become and then modify itself and evolve into the thing you can buy in the gas station today and take pictures of your neighbor with over the fence? Because even the small ones that you can buy for $25 have a camera inside them in most cases. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's that camera technology and the transmission of that camera data back to like a smartphone. So also smartphone technology that actually brought this into play for more than just your your hobbyist that wants to fly something around. So along those lines, yeah, uh, you're right. When they became small enough and and more affordable for archaeologists to use, it was still it was still a few years before they did it because archaeologists aren't really, you know, again, you need somebody that's not only tech forward uh, in in their thinking, but also not scared to learn how to fly something, which is a completely different skill than most people even mm-hmm. think they have. You know, it's not that hard, but it's it's also one of those things that people are just afraid of, even if they are tech forward they're going to back away from that because they're afraid of flying, you know, or afraid of, you know, that RC aspect of it. So I don't know. I didn't answer your question. I just asked 10 more, but there you go. (laughs) I think that the uh, camera has a lot to do with it, actually. Yeah. The camera. And like you said, the stability of having the the quad rotor, which is what we generally think of when we think of drones, though, from Mm -hmm. the FAA's perspective, you know, you can have a fixed wing drone. Yeah. Uh, Well, SUAS. Uh, they fall under the yeah. same regulations. You have to fly them differently, but you're under the exact same regulations and under the exact same permit to uh, to do so. Mm-hmm. But that camera bit, I think, is really what made the difference. Yeah, I think you're right. Because yeah. all our imagery of like drones from the Iraq war or everything, it's always somebody sitting in a room, you know, hundreds or a thousand miles away, piloting a thing remotely. And you see the grainy, uh, the grainy video of, you know, people on the ground being shot at. Hmm. I think that, that 
kind of uh, the, that expectation of how you interact with the machine through that camera, that vision uh, of the camera that's carrying on board itself is really kind of what tipped people's perception of these things over from being mm-hmm. you know, the RC airplanes, like what you and I know from uh, from our youths, to these uh, to these drones that are everywhere. And they suddenly became very, very useful for archaeologists. But I don't think that – but back to my other point though, I don't think that – I think that like the adoption of so many technologies is happening quicker and quicker. I think that the passing from cutting edge to standard toolkit for archaeologists is you know, going that same transformation. Things are, are moving along faster mm-hmm. and faster, more pace. Yeah, I think they are. I did want to make a little comment though, because the uh, the example with the the uh, legions of tiny robots was uh, <laughs> collecting samples for DNA testing, for example, which I thought, hmm, that's I, you're you're sending them down specifically at burials or what? Um, yeah, uh, but. <laughs> The DNA testing, even though it kind of only really gets this kind of passing mention in this article, is one of those areas that uh, the technology and archaeology, you know, so from medical sciences, from biological sciences, from chemical sciences, from uh, from physics, these things have been coming back into archaeology in some interesting ways. So, you know, I've mentioned before that I'm on the board of the uh, of the New York Society, the AIA, and we had a lecture last week by Dr. Felix Stockhammer from the Max Planck, Max Planck Institute, talking mm-hmm. about different. Um, what was the term? It was bioarchaeological uh, okay. techniques being applied to Mycenaean and Minoan sites. And so mm. he was talking, it was just a broad overview, but with details on each of them. So it was, uh, it was a lot to chew on. We recorded it, but it's a lot of unpublished work. So we, we're not going to be able to put it up on a YouTube channel until uh, sometime in 2022 when it does get published. But okay. uh, I got a lot of great feedback from people afterwards about it because they were so excited by the ways that he was illustrating. So th- just as a couple examples, for he was talking about lipid analyses from dental tartar to find out about you know what people were eating. Right? You know, that's definitely something nice. that uh, you wouldn't have been able to do probably 10 years ago, but they were doing mm-hmm. that. And so they were finding all sorts of things about like the kinds of foods that distinct populations were were, were eating because they have a mm-hmm. lot of burials. They also did DNA. This is where I was tying it back to that DNA comment. They, um, they also did DNA analyses of a bunch of different, showing different marital patterns because they could trace out the cladograms of, you know, relatedness of people through their DNA and say that, you know, this society seems to have had a high preference for cousin marriage, for first cousin marriage. Yeah. And in the Q&A at the end, a classicist that I know came on all excited. He's like, oh, that might explain the, the, the housing on these sites that we're at because they look like hmm. palaces in terms of the size that uh, that these buildings are, but they're not divided up in the same way the palaces are. It's like an agglomeration of uh, of distinct houses, you know, like uh, nuclear family houses. Like these might be kinship groups related uh. to, through this first cousin marriage and their descendants. Said so, so th- that went you know from archaeology getting the. Uh, excavating the burials through the uh the the scientists doing the dna analyses back into the archaeology and then that fed back into another archaeological question possibly an answer to uh, an existing archaeological question so uh so that was really cool to see and that's the kind of stuff that i think i wish i had more 
ability to discuss because you know you and I talk a lot about uh, satellite imagery and drones because we're mm-hmm. both you know at some level aerospace geeks and like looking at the world top down. But there are all sorts of great questions that can be asked by people that uh, that are coming at it from other hard science techniques. But of course, it's like we've said a million times, it's it's getting you know that biologist, that chemist talking to that archaeologist and speaking enough of the same language that they can come up with new techniques, new questions to ask, and possibly, like in this case, some new answers. Yeah. And that is one of the great things about an article like this, that people may be exposed to Heritage Daily. This may have been shared because it has archaeology in it. Maybe you've got a news alert or something like that. And an article like this that mentions, you know, 10 different things, Maybe you knew about the top three or four that uh, that a bunch of people know about, like drones and 3D printing and things like that. But maybe there were some things in here that you hadn't even considered. And now you can think about how those technologies that are new to you can be applied to your site. So along the same lines of what you're talking about, I mean, keeping an open mind in the types of things you read, listen to and search for and and go to lectures on and stuff like that will just help you become, I think, a better I don't know, better scientists, really, like any scientific profession, uh, just broadening your horizons on what's possible and thinking, well, what can that do for me in archaeology? Can I can I do anything with that? You know, aside from just saying I have a question I can't answer, I don't know how to answer it. What field could do that? I find it's easier to look at different and newer fields and say, how can I apply that to what I'm doing now? You know, because it's hard to imagine things that you don't know exist, but it's easy to take something you know exists and say, how can I apply that to what I'm doing? So mm-hmm. I don't know. When we were having the nanobot discussion, I was just, I typed in nano robotics into uh, Google and there's a, I didn't obviously read the whole thing cause we're podcasting right now, but I'll maybe link to this. <laughs> I don't know. I might, I might not because just Google nano robotics is a whole bunch of things that come out, but there's just one thing, one brief thing I saw in this hair in the science daily article talking about metallic, Nanotechnology, it's an area that allows microscopic particles of metals such as gold and silver to be manipulated with heat and light. So they're really talking about this from a medical standpoint. So moving these metallic articles around, not they're not robots, right? Like you're using, I don't know what they look like if they're just you know, several atoms of gold or something like that. It is nano. So it's, 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 you know, 0.1, what is that? 0.1, uh, 0.01 meters or, or I mean, sorry, millimeters or something like that. I can't remember what the actual nano is, but uh, it's, it's really small particles of stuff being manipulated by an outside force. And that's super cool. That's a way that I hadn't even thought about doing what I was mentioning with, you know, releasing something into the soil that you can then extract back out, but can you control it? And then can you get feedback on position and location of that thing? That's basically how stuff like, like GPR works, right? Or, or resistivity. Mm-hmm. It's basically sending out a signal and recording what comes back based on what it hit as an obstruction. Well, you could do the same thing with particles of something or little tiny robots and just send them out if you can record their positions or they can report back their positions when they get back and, and what they encountered, you can map what's, you can map what's under the surface. They just can't be too small. Cause you know, if you find pottery, they can't go through the pottery. They have to stop at the pottery wall so it can map the pottery. Well, if they're really, <laughs> really small. They could go through the pottery. 
That's what I'm talking about. You have to figure out what the right size is, right? So if you've got like a clay soil with pottery in it, you might kind of be screwed because the pottery is going to be way more porous than that clay soil. Like what kind of robot would you even throw into there that could not go through the pottery? How does it know to stop at the pottery and not just think, yay, it's a, it's a much more easy surface to get through than this, than this clay, you know? So <laughs> somebody needs to make a, uh, a new T-shirt of that little archaeological <laughs> nanobot going, yay, <laughs> yay, <laughs> nice, nice. All right, well, check out the show notes. We've got a few things in there, including this article. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, and see what you guys think about it, and you know what? Uh, what have you seen on TV, radio, news, podcasts, magazines? You know, Google searches that you thought this is a cool thing. How could I use this for technology? And if you've come up with something, I'd like to hear about it. And if you haven't come up with something, let us know. Maybe Paul and I can come up with a reason, uh, a way to do it. That, that's one, man, that would be a fun episode, wouldn't it? Where we just come up with, we just Google these like wacky technologies, like this metallic nano, nano robotics and say, okay, how would I use that for archaeology? Let's just force it into this archaeology bucket and see what we could do with it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be super fun. So, all right. Any other Thoughts on this, Paul? Uh, probably, but at the moment, I think I'm tapped out. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, I hope to uh, next time it's just going to be me because Paul's going to be in Iraq. And we had an interview scheduled actually for this one that uh, failed for technological reasons. So we're doing this instead. So we'll probably have a pretty good GIS and CRM discussion on the next episode. And we'll, I'm not going to put too many details out because... If we don't do it, we don't do it. <laughs> so we'll find out. But stay tuned for that. I think it's going to be okay. I think we're going to get to do that one. And uh, Paul will be looking forward to in a few episodes from now when you get back and talk about Iraq and, and how your experience was over there. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba, ba, ba.